Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this week we're going to enter the landscape of attention. We're specifically going to be speaking with an expert in this field, Dr. James Greenblatt. Dr. Greenblatt is a pioneer in the field of integrative medicine, specifically from the psychiatry realm. He's been treating patients for over four decades. He received his medical degree and completed his psychiatry residency at George Washington University. Dr. Greenblatt then went on to have a fellowship completed in child and adolescent psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Medical School. He then served as chief medical officer at Walden Behavioral Care in Waltham, Massachusetts for nearly 20 years. He is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University Medical School and Dartmouth College Geisel School of Medicine. Dr. Greenblatt is well known in the integrative medicine and functional medicine world as an expert in the understandings of the nutritional interventions and the upstream reasons why we have disorders of the psychiatric nature or mental illness. Over his many decades of research, he has been a leading contributor to helping folks like myself and other providers of care understand the role of the ends of one, the personalized care of each individual to go upstream to find the reasons why the system of the brain is not working as best as it could for each individual person, and then help unwind that through different modalities and therapies. He is a great teacher. He is also the author of eight books, including the bestseller, Finally Focused, The Breakthrough Natural Treatment Plan for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. He has an updated edition of Answers to Anorexia, which was released in October of 2021, and his newest book, Functional and Integrative Medicine for Antidepressant Withdrawal. He is also the founder of Psychiatry Redefined, which is an educational platform dedicated to the personalized, evidence-based treatment of mental health, which, as you know, I find to be the place we need to be spending a lot of time. Psychiatry Redefined offers continuing medical education and specific uh, CME-based courses for providers of care who want to learn how to do this in the best possible way, which is to go upstream of the reasons as to the why and not wait for the downstream issue where you're trying to treat treat these patients with medicine only. And so from that perspective, he is a researcher slash clinician that brings a host of really usable information into the fold of understanding treating disease. Now, Dr. Greenblatt and I get deep into some of the weeds, but this conversation really is a comprehensive look at what is the way to go upstream and to help unwind each person's individual responses to the environment, to nutrition, to all the different exposome pieces that lead to the phenotype that we see of as attention. So we're going to go into all kinds of discussion points around nutrition, around supplements, around micronutrients that are specifically necessary for different, different pathways to functionally perform, lab testing, what do we need to do. And so this conversation is for clinicians and parents alike. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. James Greenblatt. Well, hello, Dr. James Greenblatt. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show to talk to all things ADHD. Welcome from uh, the Boston area. Good to be with you. Thank you. 
Uh, absolute pleasure. I'm excited to have this conversation. This is uh, near and dear to my heart as somebody who has uh, attention issues of my of my own for a long, long time. So it's uh, it's a beautiful thing. So let's start with the anthropologic question. You know, so for a long time, at least in the last 30 years, it seemed like we started with this ADHD movement or the ADD movement with lots of uh, let's say media coverage and physician coverage as a disorder or disease. And anthropologically, a lot of times that doesn't make sense to me. You know, genetically, most things are not propagated through the gene pool if there's not a, an advantage to them over time. So let's touch on that, if you don't mind, and and get into the understandings of to the why we have this ability in some folks to be you know, inattentive and hypervigilant about certain things and, and narrowly focused and all of the above. Yeah, I mean, I think if we reframe some of those uh, negative symptoms to the the flip side of ADHD, which is uh, creative, passionate, impulsive, able to multitask, then there was a a clear evolutionary benefit. And there was a book a number of years ago, I think that his name was Hartman, who talked about the hunters and the farmers. And uh, there were those individuals that were needed the stimulation and could go out and hunt and do all that was needed. And there were those individuals that were better sitting um, by the farm, planting the seeds and focused on, you know, that world. So he just describes these kind of different gene pools. Um, and in uh, 10,000 years ago, they had meaning and we put a child in a classroom with 40 other kids, it is just a clash of kind of the neurobiology and what we're asking uh, these kids to do. So clearly, uh, I think it points to the neurobiology of some of these symptoms and this mismatch with our current lifestyle. Yeah, and I think I was talking to somebody else recently that, you know, in in when we think about ADHD per se, the hyperactive, inattentive, impulsive type, it tends to cluster more in boys than in girls. And in the 70s with Title IX, which was an absolutely amazing decision to try and make school more accessible to girls, that in 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 some ways, there's those folks talking that maybe that has actually pushed some of these young boys into more of a troubled scenario because the schools have become more restrictive towards a learning type that is not in keeping with the 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 phenotype of the child who is more of that hunter, excited and and so maybe we should be looking at this globally as a educational system that actually fits all types of kids, whether it's uh, you know any girl, boy, in any which way they come, instead of maybe trying to pigeonhole it to a system of thirty kids sitting in a classroom and being incredibly attentive that is clearly not capable of being done by many kids. Do you think there's some logic to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if a, a, a child is depressed and you ask them, you know, how they're feeling, they might be able to articulate, I feel sad. Uh, an ADHD uh, kid's symptoms and adults are only evident if they want to do something. So the environment has profound impact. And, and we know ADHD kids that can fish for eight hours and pay attention. And I never understood it, but they can't sit for two minutes in a math class. So absolutely, we have to create environments um, that are going to optimize these kids' strengths. And, and so, much, so much of my work is uh, looking at the individual. And uh, for ADHD, as we look at the individual, there are different environments that are going to help people 
succeed better. And as parents and as educators and as physicians, we got to sort those out with the individual. Yeah, I think that's sort of the key. And this is sort of the root of the, to me, where these issues start is that we are trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And you've been in this this world of integrative medicine long before it was even technically called integrative medicine, looking at the ends of ones, looking at each child individually as they come instead of a a soup of of children that have a disordered name. And so we should treat them all the same. And that clearly in medicine, I think is a long, hopefully disappearing reality. And we should be looking at every child with whatever disease they have as a unique entity within the framework of their biology. So from that perspective, let's sort of define ADD, ADHD, as it is currently stated in the pharma, I mean, in the uh, psychiatric, psychiatric literature. And then what about the endotypes? You know, I think um, by definition is a, is just a checklist of symptoms, you know, around inattention, impulsivity, overactivity, um, uh, persistence of effort. And, and that checklist is kind of meaningless because there are multiple kind of ideologies. And, and that's kind of the where psychiatry has really lagged uh, behind, as you said, everyone's treated the same. So ADHD now we think of, you know, a Ritalin deficiency. And uh, the world that I've been in for 30 years now practicing as a child psychiatrist, as you described, uh, the N of one. So we look and we dig deeper and it could be any number of nutritional, metabolic or environmental or psychosocial causes that are contributing to that neurobiology. Right. And so this is where we get into hardcore biochemistry, which I think is the key that's lacking. At least, you know, I think about my years in medical school, we talk about going through and learning all the different inputs to the balance points of human health. And then when they become unbalanced, you turn into disease and biochemistry is something we learn. But it was, you know, part of the pathology, pathophysiology education, but we seem to lean heavier on the end of the pathophysiology pathophysiologic pathway. So instead of going upstream to where things are starting, we tended to go all the way downstream to where it's actually causing dysfunction or disease or symptoms is what I call it more. And so we tend to learn pharmacology on symptom management instead of going back. And I think what you're doing clearly is going back upstream and saying, okay, why are these neurobiological pathways broken or let's say stunted? And can we go back upstream and figure out where those those wheels are not turning and really turn them back on. And that way, you know, what we see is the phenotype down the road doesn't show up as such. And so let's go sort of through your approach and, and, and specifically, you know, how you from beginning to end intake a patient in your child psychiatry practice that has attention deficit concerns, and then how they come out on the back end after a, a full analysis and, and, and treatment and use an example if you want, or however you want to go through this, because what you're going to give out is a very unique way, unfortunately, again, I'm going to say very unfortunately, a unique way of approaching patients in the modern, you know, American psychiatric or even primary care world. Sure. Uh, I'll give you the big picture. And the um, I think uh, the, the goal at first, like in the rest of medicine, but uh, is a good history. So the clinical history is important, as well as the family history. So much of the work that I do is based on two or three generations of, of family history. So that is critical. And then after, and typically in my practice, I might have a social worker or someone to take that hour history. 
Um, and then the real work is, is detective work and it's looking at the biology. So then rather than prescribing a pill to treat the symptoms, a, a functional psychiatry practice would do a lot of testing. And we would look at heavy metals, copper and lead. We would look at nutritional deficiencies, zinc and magnesium. We would look at the gut. We would look at something called uh, pyloria. We would look at genetic vulnerabilities. We would do objective tests to find out if there are one or two or seven contributing kind of biological factors. And that is goal one. And that's three to four months of, of supporting um, the child. I, I didn't mention all of them. It could be food allergies. It could be a whole bunch of things. But it's that objective test that guides a personalized treatment plan. And I could have 10 10-year-olds 10 with ADHD and the parents using the exact same words and the kid is describing the same experiences, but the underlying biology could be very different. Right. And and so let's go through some individual testing, let's say, for example. So, you know, in our practice, we do very specific things, but I'm really curious to see, at least from the from your perspective, what other clinicians can learn from how you do it as well as, well as parents can hear what a different way is to do it. So let's go through some of those tests. Um, so let's start with a microbiome. Do you, which test do you do and how do you look at the gut? Um, I found the organic acid test, the first page of the uh, organic acid test called the MOAT, looking at uh, overgrowth of uh, candida and clostridia markers as the simplest and the most effective way of looking at dysbiosis in the gut. Uh, I don't do stool samples routinely on kids. Um, if there was significant GI symptoms uh, down the road. But the organic acid, um, yeast used to be a big problem when your colleagues and used to, you know, antibiotics for every sniffle and cough and ear infection. So I'd see a lot of yeast overgrowth when I started that contributed. And now we see um, clostridia overgrowth. And one particular marker uh, on the organic acid uh, called HP, HPHPA. Right. Um, which is directly associated with irritable, angry, aggressive behavior. And um, so it's that's our first test is looking at the gut. Right. And so and so for folks listening, you know, a lot of different practitioners will do RNA samples of stool to look at specific bacterial profiles. And in this case, you're looking more at the metabolites to see what's coming out on the organic acid test to pick up the pieces of the, the clues to to give you an answer. And so based on that, clearly, obviously, the biggest thing would be to adjust dietary inputs that drive the clostridia to potentially be more more active. Do you do herbals or antibiotics to knock back a clostridial overgrowth? Or how do you approach that? Yeah, sometimes we have to. I would say with kids, most of the time, high-dose probiotics um, and, and if possible dietary changes can help. Um, but for really stubborn, multiple comorbid conditions and adults, sometimes we actually need to use a course of antibiotics. But it's such a nice marker because we have this objective test. Uh, I've said for years, nobody can feel well with elevations of this HPHPA marker. And when we treat it, we watch it go down and symptoms improve. 
Do you find that if a child doesn't change the antecedent dietary triggers that these things remain problematical over time? That's something that I've noticed in my practice. If they stay on a what I call standard American refined carbohydrate diet, they tend to promote these gram-negative rods and different species of bacteria that are bidirectionally talking to the brain in an, in an inappropriate way. And I find it a struggle to keep them in you know low inflammation states in the brain. Is that your clinical skill as well? Um, yeah, we opinion. usually get improvement regardless of diet. But as you described, you know, the parents and the families that can support a better diet and lifestyle, these are the kids that don't keep relapsing with the same problem. Right. So other stuff, I know minerals are a big piece of the pie because there are major cofactors that are involved in turning around cellular or biochemical activities. Do you check zinc, different stuff of that nature? I know you listed a, listed some stuff that you other test. What else do you test in that in that minerals frame or vitamins sure. frame? Uh, you know, I think for ADHD, magnesium is probably the most important. And you know, I'm uh, obsessed with testing and objective data, but uh, magnesium deficiency, in my experience, is 99% of every ADHD child and adult. I believe there's got to be something genetic there because um, regardless of diet, we see it. And so magnesium, I think, is most accurately tested by a trace mineral hair test, as well as an RBC magnesium. Yeah, RBC is the one we tend to use. Trace mineral I have not used, and um, but that's interesting. All that's good to know for everybody. And you supplement then back with specific type of mag. I know folks with constipation tend to use, you know, magnesium citrate. But then there's mag three and eight. Which one do you use, or do you pick it based on the phenotype of the child? Um, I, I'd say most of the time using magnesium glycinate, yeah. um, which will help uh, with constipation, sleep, and and uh, ADHD symptoms. Uh, occasionally, uh, again, with other comorbid depression or OCD, magnesium three and eight, um, might be better for a small number, but uh, magnesium, uh, glycinate has been what I've used for many years. Okay, great. And how about zinc, vitamin D, copper, red blood cell copper looking for excesses there. Do you find anything of that nature? Yeah, all the above. Again, those 10 kids, we're going to find 10 different things. We're going to have these of low vitamin Ds of, of eight and nine, and then we're going to get normal vitamin D. So absolutely looking at vitamin D. Um, the high copper is, is common. Um, and again, the hair test I have found to be most accurate, um, looking at um, levels of copper and, uh, and that creates a zinc deficiency. So one of the research um, uh, kind of protocols that we've had for many, many years in child psychiatry is using zinc for ADHD. Uh, child psychiatrists got interest in that and they did research. So now we have all these articles, kids with ADHD have low zinc and they do better with zinc. But no one in the early days looked at why, um, but most of the reason is due to high copper. So um, zinc is a, an important adjunct, whether someone is using stimulants or not. And depending on how high the copper is, is to how long the treatment takes. And do you and do you submit that's mostly due to copper pipes in the inner cities, or is there a specific reason to the copper exposure? Um, yeah, most of it I think is copper pipes, uh, the water supply, because usually people in families have high copper, um, some more toxic levels than others. Um, so most of it I contribute to environmental um, 
programs. They they did a study after the Flint, Michigan lead crisis, Massachusetts, where I live, they did a study, I think of 800 elementary schools. And not only did they look at lead, they looked at copper and I, it was oh, 50% had, had elevation levels of copper in the water fountains in these elementary schools. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and again, we know that these heavy metals, they, uh, you know, the heavy metals and then the other types of toxins, they compete with the function of the enzymes and they can cause problems in neurotransmitter activity. And so these are all problematical. Um, okay. So that's sort of the ones that I tend to see most practitioners doing is these minerals and and these basic vitamins. Do you look at any of the B vitamins in particular? Um, do you go after methylated B vitamins looking for functions along that pathway and then metabolites like methylmalonic acid for, for B12 or any of that nature? Yeah. I mean, B12 is certainly a, a screening test. We do on everyone. I, I haven't found that value to be particularly a concern with ADHD. It's hugely missed in anxiety and depression um, in kids and adults, but ADHD don't see a lot of low B12, but we do see um, a lot of the MTHFR genetic variants. So I do try to do a genetic test looking at that um, gene that helps us understand how we metabolize folate. It, it's hard, I found to test for some of the B vitamins so, you know, other than B12 and folate. So I right. do give a B complex because these kids are eating processed foods and, and desperately deficient. So B complex would be part of the supplements. I just don't have great objective tests for the other B vitamins. Right. And do you do sublingual or, or in that case, you just do um, chewable or capsulary for the B complexes? The B complex... Um, would be, you know, they could swallow, but for the B12, it would be sublingual. Absolutely. Yeah. Sublingual. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like a company designs for health that has a B complex. That's all sublingual, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, okay. Nice yellow, nice yellow color. Cause it's got the thiamine in it, like for the alcoholic uh, liver disease person. So it's a, it's an interesting one. It stains the teeth a little in the beginning until you brush them. So I always recommend people do it before they brush their teeth. So yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Um, other thoughts in the mineral, in the mineral vitamin space. I know omega-3 index is something that a bunch of people do before we head off there. Is there anything else in the mineral vitamin space that you do do selenium, anything else? You know, we, we on the trace mineral hair test, we do see an array of minerals, but probably one of the most important parts of my practice and my career is actually looking at a nutritional lithium. So a trace mineral hair test will pick up lithium. We all should have some lithium in our stores of, of hair. And what we find, particularly with the impulsive aggressive kids, is they have undetectable lithium. So the amount of lithium that's in our body is dependent on the, the water we're drinking because um, it's in our uh, soils and, and mostly through our water. And between filtered water and bottled water, um, we're just seeing a lot more kids that are completely um, uh, deficient in lithium. And there's not a official diagnosis of lithium deficiency syndrome, but that's what I've been doing for 30 years. And again, right. subset of kids particularly the impulsive, aggressive kids, a couple milligrams can be uh, dramatic in terms of improving those symptoms. And you're using lithium orotate? Yes, yes. Yeah, lithium orotate, got it. Now, how about omega-3s? I know there's a lot of buzz around omega-3 fatty acids in the brain and how much it does for uh, cellular membrane activity and and as well as uh, the resolvents and protectants or these 
pro-lipid mediators and lots of other research coming there. Do you do omega-3 indexes specifically looking for omega-3 to omega-6 ratios or anything in that nature? Yeah, I mean, I think like magnesium, um, in the old days, everyone just took omegas and there was some pretty dramatic improvements. So omega-3s um, would be a recommendation without testing. But when you look at the testing and like the uh, omega-3 index, um, you see pretty dramatic differences. And someone with very low omega-3s, you would just want to make sure you're giving more and more prolonged time. But absolutely, we'd want to look at... Um, levels of omega-3. I'm not as big on the omega-3 to 6 ratio. I'm not sure that that literature clinically holds for me, but you can see kids with very low levels of omega-3. Some Sometimes you can trace it to dietary intake. They've never ate fish. They ate fish. Other times it's not as clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I find that to be pretty, like magnesium, pretty spot on that there's just a across the board problem with access to the food for folks, or at least for the reason some, they just don't have enough omega-3s in the body. And I think that's pretty similar for vitamin D, especially in our area. Got a lot of kids who are just indoors all day long and not getting enough exposure. You know, in the South, we should have plenty of vitamin D via the skin. And we're just not seeing those numbers. When we do test kids, we're seeing, you know, 10 to, to 30 at the best. And so that's, you know, quite frustrating when I think about the the ability that that's such a naturally derived, uh, you know, vitamin from the sun exposure. And I'm sure up in Boston, it's probably even worse at some to some extent with the type of uh, sun exposure you guys have. Yeah, it's a, a pretty significant problem between the sunscreen and being inside and I think what people aren't aware of is, is vitamin D is, is just critical for brain function. It right. is the cofactor and the rate limiting step for serotonin and some of these other neurotransmitters. So, I mean, across almost every major psychiatric illness, we have literature of low vitamin D and its associations from ADHD to suicide, but it's pretty ignored by most of our psychiatric community. Yeah, and I, I think about it, I just did a deep dive in immunology the past couple of years. And uh, one of the things I worry about tremendously is FOXP3 or T regulator cell function. And as a, as a dampening response to the immune system when it gets out of whack for any kind of inflammatory response. And it's clear now through the literature that vitamin D is a major player in FOXP3 activity for T regs. But the newest thing that I found recently after doing a deeper dive into uric acid and, and uh, fructose is that high fructose corn syrup is driving a negative activity on FOXP3 and specifically through uric acid and as the terminal byproduct of fructose metabolism. And there's a one study that I just looked at that showed that it's having a major effect on mood disorders. And I, it wasn't specifically related to ADHD, but with the comorbidity that's associated with, with, with these uh, attention deficit kids. And I think that fructose intake is probably going to turn out to be a major driver of problems as well, because it's such a huge uh, flux change for, for NL, NLRP and three inflammasome activity inside the body. And I think this is one of the pieces of it among many. Have you, um, have you had any thoughts around that piece or do you talk to your patients specifically around avoiding, I mean, simple sugars, of course, but specifically fructose or any of, any of the, the fruit sugars like that? Yeah, well, it certainly comes up in this uh, relationship that's probably not talked about enough between ADHD and eating disorders. And um, what we find is, uh, particularly women um, with ADHD, much higher incidence of, of eating disorders. 
So these high fructose corn syrup kind of also disrupts appetite regulation and um, has, uh, I think, a very direct role in, in binge eating, you know, and you just put an impulsive, uh, inattentive uh, individual in front of food. Um, we know that the eating actually helps pay attention, but it changes the brain waves. So it's just ADHD is just a major setup. And I think that variable is what you described, the ultra processed food with high fructose corn syrup. Yeah, it just keeps popping up everywhere I turn. I was just reading another article on RSV and RSV inducing asthma. And there was the NLRP3 inflammasome was at the center of that, which again is driven by the same process. And then Rick Johnson's work with preeclampsia and right at the front end of that was again fructose. It's it's uh, it's almost like this uh, this nightmare this nightmare food that's been thrust onto modern America in the past three decades that happens to coincide with the rise of how many different disorders again, can't cause it, can't say it's causative, but boy, it's right at the right time that we're seeing so many things go sideways. So let's push on that a little bit, sort of like in the toxin realm, even though this is not truly a toxin, it's a food. What other toxins do we think about here? Do we worry about, you know, and again, I'm, this is a, probably those questions is unanswerable, but about organic versus inorganic food. So glyphosate roundup. I mean, it's so hard to parse that stuff out, but do you have a sense of what you tell your folks? I mean, I always tell folks, listen, I can't tell you it's really that bad for you, but I can certainly tell you it's not good for you. So if we can, let's try and avoid it. But what is your take on that piece? Yeah. I mean, my, my brain first goes to what we just talked about, which is zinc deficiency. So all of the environmental toxins, the, the phthalates and the all the plastics and PBAs, they all bind zinc. So it's one of the mechanisms why zinc deficiency is so common. So, you know, usually the parents, when they get to me, are pretty frustrated and they want a solution. So it's usually kind of step two where we start discussing, you know, uh, other than sleep hygiene, you know, diet and helping them appreciate what an organic food, particularly if they're eating the skin, uh, of a fruit or vegetable, the difference between that and a non-organic food. Right, right. Let's talk about pyrroles. That's not something you hear very often. I mean, frankly, you, you listen to 100 podcasts on ADHD, you might hear pyrroles once. Um, so what's how common is that? You know, when I, I don't test that that much anymore, I don't see a ton of ADHD patients, but when I did, I didn't find it to be positive very often. Is, is that something you see in a relative frequency or is it really just the zebra that once in a while you find that's figures out the frustrating case? Well, it's um, a good question. And in a psychiatric practice, it, it's common. And, and let's say common might be 20%. So, but but that 20%, two out of these 10 kids, it is life-changing if I have that result. And it's simple. So it's the one area of my work where I do not have great research, where I could go to present to my skeptical colleagues and tell them what this urine cryptopyro means. We just don't have the research. But clinically, it is powerful. So a simple urine test, Let's just take that 20%, those two kids, very high levels. All we use is B6 and zinc, sometimes high doses of B6, higher than I would use otherwise, and symptoms improve. So, you know, when I get a marker that's going to turn a kid's life around, literally, it's just worth it. And it's an inexpensive test. 
and um, seen pretty dramatic results. So it's not every yeah. kid in a pediatric practice. It might be, you know, much less. But in a psychiatric practice, usually anxiety um, is a component. But I've seen every psychological symptom associated with cryptopyrrole. So I don't discriminate anymore because there's some uh, internet, you know, checklists. If you have these four symptoms, do cryptopyrrole. Every psychiatric patient in my practice gets a cryptopyrrole test. It's hmm. interesting. I, I find that that super fascinating, and I'm going to have to look at that. I wonder if it's a self-selected bias because you have maybe potentially sicker patients or not. I'd be curious to see, and maybe I need to reinvest a little bit more time into looking at it because one in five is significant. What other um, what other tests are you looking at or in to parse out these subset patients? Uh, we talked about the trace mineral. We talked about genetic testing, uh, organic acid if possible, to get the omega-3 index. And then the, you know, the routine screening labs, looking at, you know, uh, iron, zinc, um, magnesium, thyroid often missed in, in kids with ADHD. How about celiac? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, there's a subset of kids across all major psychiatric diagnoses um, that have undetected celiac. And so it is a screening test for all of our patients actually just finished an yeah. article for our newsletter this week because many of the kids kids with psychological symptoms, it's usually anxiety, depression, eating disorders, they don't have any GI symptoms. They just have malnutrition, don't pay attention, and nobody is looking at, you know, celiac or an immune response to the villi. Yeah. And let's segue there because I think you know, if you look at Alessio Fasano's work at Harvard, you know, celiac is one to 2%, depending on which study you read of the United States population, but NCGS or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is, you know, a different biomarker seems to be at a much higher volume. And I could tell you, you know, that I've seen many patients that were celiac negative, but gluten elimination diet responsive at a much higher volume. Let's segue into allergy testing. And in this case, you know, food intolerance testing, which is either T-cell mediated or, or IgG mediated. How do you test them? Do you use Cyrex or IgG or do you just do elimination diets? Um, you know, again, in my world, I like to have the objective data because I usually have one parent who's a skeptic. So it's nice to have that test, <laughs> you know, in front of them. Um and for young kids, um, you know, I'm a little concerned about parents, you know, treating, reading something online and giving their three and four-year-old lots of vitamins and minerals because it doesn't usually help. So the kids seven and under, almost all the time, it, it has to do with something in the environment and, and food intolerance is, is common. And um, when I get to the adolescents, they still have them, but it's not as significant clinically. And, and my adults... You know, if they're motivated, absolutely would do it. But for these young kids, it's usually 50 to 75% of the problem. And it could be the common offenders like corn, milk, and, and dairy. But sometimes we're going to pick up tomatoes or peanuts or, you know, other things. And um, we can see uh, symptoms improve. And which test are you using specifically, if you don't mind? If is it is an IgG, IgG4, do you use Genova yeah. or... I've just been using uh, Great Plains for years, the IgG. Uh, Great Plains, got it. And I think the most important thing is, for clinicians anyways, just use the same lab all the time because 
you know, split samples don't always work. And if you send out to different labs, you don't get the consistency. But if you use the same lab on every patient, you really can, uh, I think it's much easier to interpret the results. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the allergy, I don't tend to think of as a common confounder of this problem because food allergies in general are so simple to pick up that most people avoid them if they have a true allergy. So that's what always makes this so interesting from an immunological perspective. Do you do any form of, I know, you know, alpha stim or any kind of, of sort of secondary uh, reducing stress type modulation? Well, uh, for a year, well, maybe three years uh, when I started um, in the Boston area, we did neurofeedback. So I'm very familiar with, um, you know, neurofeedback. And it was great when it worked. At the time, insurance didn't cover it. And it was hard to kind of predict um, who would get better. It took a motivated kid and family. Uh, but neurofeedback uh, was the tool I'm most familiar with, where um, significant changes over time and sometimes long-lasting changes. Yeah. The, the literature on, you know, all the other lifestyle things, particularly mindfulness, is is pretty dramatic. Um, you know, you don't think of a hyperactive or impulsive child or even adult being able to benefit um, from mindfulness, but that literature is quite strong and it's not necessarily sitting there. It could be active uh, movement, uh, walking, um, but mindfulness practices will help uh, attention. Yeah, I tend to think of... Um... I had the pleasure of having dinner with uh, Stephen Porges recently, who has written a lot of work on polyvagal theory. And I tend to think of that in the realm of trying to help people get into ventral vagal. And so they're less likely to be in sympathetic or post-dorsal uh, vagal, which tends to be counterproductive to having the prefrontal cortex calm in its position. So I would think that's likely one of the bigger pieces of the pie of how that those interventions make a difference. Yeah, I, I think to your point, what modality is sort of like the ends of one with kids, certain modalities work with people, certain ones don't with others, but none of them in general have a, a net negative in the, in the reality of the outcome. So trying them, I think for most parents are generally pretty cost-effective would be a really great idea um, to head down that path. What about, uh, there's, you know, been a lot of work, at least in local colleagues of mine who do this stuff at, in looking into OPCs, talk about OPCs and, what you think about them and how they work and what's the, the probable benefit in attention deficit? Well, I mean, I'm a huge fan. My, my little uh, foray into research was looking at the EEG changes with OPCs, you know, the grape seed, the blueberry extract. So I watched um, dramatic changes in brainwave patterns uh, with adults and kids with ADHD. So um you know, I got to see it and uh, I've been using them for 30 years. So for an adult with ADHD, sometimes they don't want to do the testing. We're just using a herb called rhodiola um, and OPCs. And I can't tell you how many adults have thanked me for just that combination. But for kids, actually, I just spoke to uh, clinicians this morning who, um, you know, l listened to one of my lectures in OPCs. And that's the only thing she's doing with some of her kids and seeing differences. So my experience is they help. They help with attention uh, more than uh, impulsivity. And I've just found over the years the mixed sources. So if you just give grapeseed or you just give pine bark, you get a little improvement. But when you get the mixed sources with grapeseed and pine bark and 
blueberry extract, they tend to do better. It's a huge. And what's the, yeah, and let's go through this. Let's go through biochemistry list since you've done a deeper dive into this space. What do we know is happening or what do we don't know? Like, I guess just give it on both structures. Like, what's biochemically going on when we think about the anthocyanins and how they're actually getting into the body? Is it primarily meta metabolic in the gut? Is it primarily something directly going through the venous system into the brain or arterial system into the brain? I mean, well, it's probably all of the above. I mean, the newer research looks at, you know, uh, enhancing the the gut microbiome, so that is is newer. But in the in when I started, you know, a hundred years ago, we knew that OPCs actually bind copper, so that's a problem. We know they're anti-inflammatory and antihistamine, so allergies are common. And we also know that it enhances both the the integrity of the GI tract and the blood-brain barrier. So the both the toxins and these food allergens. And then the mechanism that we looked at was just um, these brainwave patterns. So the when you're if you're not paying attention, you have these uh, theta brainwaves, right? These high theta brainwaves. And if you're paying attention, you have beta. So we just watched OPCs bring down those theta waves, those distractible brainwaves. Not sure the mechanism, but that's what we could see. Um, in um, many, many cases. Yeah, and again, to your point, that's objective, right? So you have actual data that you know there's a shift in the theta waves from where they were before, presumably much higher to a neutral or even an improved below baseline state, which would then correspond with a change in the phenotype of the patient. That's a win-win. So yeah, it sounds it sounds very you know beautiful in the sense that we have a, a, a clear natural product that you know just like many things has has potential for side effects but very low and then the the upside is seems to be super high so that seems like something that I would I would be all in on folks giving a giving a trial and to see so that's to me a win win any other thoughts in this space i know you know you've you've studied this this space for over 40 almost 40 years now any other pathways you head down for very rare patients anything of of else of interest well, we, we did talk about lifestyles, so the, the mindfulness, but exercise is critical, and most ADHD kids and adults know that. They feel better. I, I think sleep and sleep hygiene is, is uh, the biggest struggle for parents and for kids, and I think that uh, it's not under control in adolescents can just um, really create chaos. So, you know, my approach um, is, you know, helping parents understand the importance of sleep and knowing that this disorder works against us, and if we let it get out of control, these kids have very, very distorted sleep schedules. So that is a real important part of the treatment. Right. And I think there's one thing you've seen, like I've seen at least in the last probably about 15 years since the invention of the iPhone, how much has changed in the rapidity of information into the brain of these children almost making them less attentive to some extent, or at least feeding the brain of those that are inattentive to begin with. Have you seen a difference? And do you, obviously I would assume you do, but do you counsel them heavily about watching carefully the use of these short 20 minute videos, ad nauseum, excessive screen time, all the above? Yeah. I mean, we have pretty good literature and uh, it's pretty scary looking, uh, watching these infants now holding screens at the restaurant. Um, I'm glad I don't have young children, but um, 
I think that, um, you know, I think I've given as a child psychiatrist, you know, the kid would never come back if I use words like eliminate screams. But, you know, we've always for years and before we knew how concerning we always set it up as limiting and structure and rules and and kind of being responsible uh, as parents. It is a challenge. I think probably the hardest challenge of raising kids now. Yeah, I would agree. I think it is the the most difficult obstacle that we have to hurdle in the near future is and they're getting more and more problematical with ai targeting making it more and more likely that the kids will continue to watch because they're being targeted specifically towards what they want so it will it will continue to be a struggle for the foreseeable future and god forbid Neuralink comes to pass and then it's actually embedded in our brains and <laughs> what's the answer there i have no idea we're almost we're almost going we're almost technologically advancing faster than we can capably deal with the the new inputs as they come in which is uh making our lives difficult um the patient's lives significantly more difficult but even our lives as clinicians is is becoming more and more difficult as these challenges come to pass so yeah, I, I hear you entirely. And then, so from the comorbid side, clearly ADD or ADHD, as we call it, has a lot of comorbidity uh, with mood, especially anxiety. Do you tend to do a specific focus there? Or does a lot of that tend to ferret itself out based on the primary protocol you're working on with the ADD? Because a lot of the same inputs that you're working on are going to affect the secondary problem of the other comorbidity, depending on which is more problematical. Yeah, I mean, I think um, when they get to me as a child psychiatrist, what's uh, often missed is the um, OCD and, and tick disorders, which uh, can be comorbid. I, I think the depression and the anxiety is easier to ascertain, but um, we see a lot of missed OCD and, and tick disorders. And I think the, the biochemistry, my job as a detective, is going to support all those comorbid diagnoses, but the therapy, you know, and the treatment might be a little different. So the the diagnosis um, and the comorbid diagnoses are really important to understand from the beginning. Yeah, hundred percent. And again, that comes to the whole child approach or the whole patient approach that we're looking for the whole story as we go through it. What about um, let's look at it from the the, the old school reality with the, uh, the medicines, right? So before all the functional medicine or the great approach you take to this, people just put patients on drugs. In your world, clearly you're pulling on so many levers upstream that you're unwinding a lot of the reasons why the neurotransmitters, the inflammation, whatever's going on in the brain is being mitigated. How much of the time does that negate the need for medicine at all? And then therefore, what percentage of patients in, again, guesstimation, end up on medicine of a pharmacological variety and are the doses significantly less? And let's let's sort of touch on that a bit because I think it's important for parents to understand that and clinicians as well. Sure. I mean, we talked about genetics. We talked about neurobiology. We talked about evolution. And so if I'm saying this is a neurobiological disorder, my job is to help the parents and the, the patient understand we're going to do biology to help you. There's no amount of psychotherapy that's going to help you focus and pay attention. And, and our approach is, is metabolic, nutritional first, but I haven't thrown away my prescription pen. And there are kids who aren't going to get through school without, you know, stimulant. Um, and so we would use a stimulant if needed and, and certainly adults or uh, college and things like that. So the medicine use is much less. The side effect profile should be zero. 
Um, a lot of the side effects of stimulants are due to magnesium deficiency. So we always give magnesium with the stimulant um, and that prevents it. And the dosages are, are typically much lower. And it, it's not then a lifelong prescription. It's just support for that environment that you really weren't kind of uh, genetically born for. And once you get a job and career and life that excites you, most ADHD individuals are going to be able to uh, put in the, the attention and persistence of effort that they need to kind of enjoy their life. Yeah, I, th- I, I, I entirely agree. And I think in so many ways, it's getting through primary and even high school. That's the di- most difficult piece. Once people get to college, they tend to be able to self-select towards that which they love and they tend to hyper-focus and life is pretty darn good as long as the impulsivity doesn't do things that gets them into trouble in the real world, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, crashing cars or whatever else that comes along sometimes with that imp- impulsivity nature, especially with phones as they are now. So um, question that I tend to ask all the guests as we're coming up on the end of our time, you know, I tend to, to ask everyone the same question while I'm asking you, I'll, I'll tell you what mine is, but if you were given a golden ticket and you had the ability to go to Congress or the president of the United States and say, Hey, I'd like to have one thing changed and I'm going to give you this ticket and, and they have no, nothing they can do, but to change that. Mine would be change school food. I would put chefs in every school. I'd put real food, be whole food. It'd be no processing. It'd be you know completely devoid of red dyes, everything else. And then the kids would have at least one of the levers completely pulled all the time for 66 meals of the day that they get, especially for inner city kids. What would you do? I would uh, make sure that every child uh, reaching a clinician, physician or therapist with a mental health issue have this battery of blood and urine and tests to identify these biological factors. Because if we treat it at age 11, think about what we could prevent at age 18 and 25. Yeah, you hit on a lot of hit, hit a, lot, a lot of points right there. And I, you know, again, you look at the COVID experience of shutting down schools for so long, and some kids didn't see a teacher for a year and a half. There's going to be an educational debt there that's hard to to fix. And if they have these other problems going along with it that are stunting their educational growth, it's a problem. So I agree entirely. So your book finally focused is out there in the world, the breakthrough for natural treatment plan for ADD. I encourage everyone to read that. I know you've written a bunch of other ones. Uh, I know you had one in the recent past uh, about antidepressant withdrawal as well. So it's pretty awesome. You're putting all this stuff out in a book form for people to actually look at as well. Where else can people follow you? I know you have this a newsletter. Can you put a shout out to the things that people can track you if they want to follow your research? Uh, sure. The, our professional platform to train docs and is psychiatryredefined.org. Um, and then um, my website is James Greenblatt, MD, with some of our books um, on ADHD, depression, eating disorders. Yeah. And I'm going to put a link to all that in the show notes in our newsletter that we do, and it'll be at the end of this as well. So you get the final word. Uh, anything we didn't touch on that you really thought was important that we get out there or any last thoughts? And now I'm impressed. I think we hit all the major points. The summary point for me is, is every child's different. And, and that's why the testing is so important. And if we look beyond symptoms at that, that individual, uh, I think there's a clear path in psychiatry now, ADHD in particular, to help more kids than are being helped with just medicine. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. That's the, uh, 
the way medicine should be. It should be an N of one with an understanding of a, a global picture that we learn from years and years of experience with patients. And uh, but still, each child is individual, and your work exemplifies that. And I appreciate your time. You know, importantly, appreciate the work you've done because without you doing the heavy lift for these past few decades, really spending the time to figure out these ends of ones and all these different testing abilities and looking at it very objectively that we don't have this information to share with the rest of the world. So thank you for doing all the heavy lifting and uh, just thank you for your hour. Great. No, pleasure talking to you. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye-bye. So when we think about dissecting this conversation, for me, the most important thing right out of the gate is that attention deficit traits that we see in kids these days were not always problematical, right? And so they didn't rise to the level of concern for most of human history because many of these traits, the novelty seeking, the desire to explore, the impetuousness, the impulsivity, the hypervigilance were really evolutionary beneficial to many of our ancestors for human history. You know, the ability to hunt, the ability to do these other activities that really served our society for a long, long time, or at least that person. Fast forward. Now we live in a world that says, to this child who has these same novelty-seeking, hyper, you know, excitable, fidgety behavior, sit in a classroom for many hours in a row, focus on this blackboard and pay attention. And that's really difficult. And so it's to some extent a mismatch of this phenotype to the environment we find ourselves in. Now, that's not to say that we don't want these children to be able to do these things. We do, but within reason, right? So if the child is failing school, unable to attune or to, uh, stay attentive at all, then yes, we need to really consider what does that mean? And then the other point that we get into clearly in this conversation with Dr. Greenblatt is that there are levers pushing on the brain to make this attention significantly more inattentive. And that is the part that is necessarily looked at from the perspective of how do we unwind it? How do we say if you have pyroles, what do we want to do? If you have a pyrole issue, if you have a problem of micronutrient insufficiency or deficiency in your neurological transmissions and your neurotransmitter function and the cellular pathways aren't working appropriately, then help to do that, right? Or are there any other inputs that are going societally, right? So social media dictating to your mind that it's great to see things in really tiny snippets and actually worsening through programming the neural system to want nothing but quick, fast, digestible material. There's a lot of levers to look at, to pull on for each different child so that they can get back to the best version of themselves, not asking them to be the child that can sit still for eight hours straight with no problem. We're not asking them to be different than who they are. We're asking them to be the best version of who they are in this moment where we go help them upstream to what actually might be pushing them in the wrong direction. And it's evidence-based and we need to look at the evidence to consider all of the different pieces of the upstream pie. And, and I love the fact that Dr. Greenblatt looks at all of the evidence to come up with a sort of a, a protocol, 
as you would call it. It's not a specific protocol like I think of in medicine that I don't like, which is everybody's treated the same based according to a protocol. It's a protocol of understanding of looking at a host of reasons why, and then identifying those reasons and then adjusting based on them. Not protocolizing to you just take this med and end of story. No, 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 not that at all. It's protocolization of looking at here are the things we want to all look at for every child and then pull on the levers that become noticeable in the sense of there's an abnormality of X. Let's then deal with X. And his research specifically into oligomeric proanthocyanidins, OPCs, is super interesting to me. Anthocyanins are, you know, secondary plant metabolites distributed in many fruits and vegetables in the purple, pink, blue, red color range of compounds. And they have incredible nutritional and biochemical value that leads to downstream health effects that are beneficial. And in study, we've noted that OPCs are effective in helping deal with inflammation, oxidation, what we call rusting inside the body, and really helping to modulate neuropeptides in the brain that then lead to enhanced benefits against attention problems. Once you consume these anthocyanidins or OPCs, if you take them in a supplement form, preferably I am a big fan of taking things in a food form first, but if you add in a, a dietary supplement like an OPC, you know, they are, they are then metabolized to different substrates in the gut by like uh, glucuronides, they're metabolized to sulfates, to methylates. And those degradation pieces in the colon allow the gut microbiome to be involved in this. So again, so you want your gut microbiome to be healthy in order to cleave the anthocyanins into the form that we really want them to be put into. And according to the literature, the microbiota have the ability to hydrolyze glycosylated forms and cleave the anthocyanin, the OPC, heterocyclic form into benzoic acids and fluorogluconol derivatives, which may then be absorbed and are what we think are the contributing bioavailable anthocyanin metabolites that get to the brain and help the body. The gut microbiota specifically are involved in this process, and then we see that they will produce things like for hydroxybenzoic acid, proto-cathushic acid, gallic acid, vanillic acid, syringic acid, and many others. These are all fancy names, but what we really care about is that those are the metabolites or these little protein molecules that are doing what we want them to do upstream and really help the system function. That's big, right? We talked about the need for zinc. We talked about the need to understand if there's an overload of copper. We talked about magnesium. We talked about so many different minerals that are cofactors, as discussed in previous podcasts with other guests, that those cofactors involved in specific pathways of brain function that then lead us to be able to witness change within the child that enhances their ability to be attentive to what is necessary without changing who they are personality-wise, which is one of the big complaints when children take medicine, specifically the amphetamines that are good for enhancing your attention, but not great for your personality. A lot of these kids feel like their personalities are done, dumbed down or they're flattened, and that's not good. 
But what I've found in my career is that when I do take care of ADHD patients who are willing to do the work and we look upstream at these issues as Dr. Greenbet laid out, then if we do need the medicine because they're struggling in school getting C's, D's, and F's, that the dose of medicine is minimal. And based on the minimal dose, they don't ever enter the side effect profile, so it's a win-win across the board. The patients that I take care of that have none of the upstream things dealt with because of either social determinant problems or poverty or parents who are unwilling to do any of the work, those kids end up on higher doses to maintain an ability to function as an attentive child in school. But then they get massive side effect problems of appetite inhibition, um, suppression completely of, of their desire to eat. They have problems with that flattening affect of their personality and they just struggle, right? And so lends itself to, again, the reason why as a society, we should be working hard on helping folks deal with the social determinants of health, poverty, inability to get access to good food, inability to access to clean air, clean water. These are all super important levers that society should be pulling on, right? Because not every child is born to a parent that's willing to do the work. Not every child is born in, an, in a neighborhood that is safe, right? So we as a society should be working on those things. And I think that's super important. And so for me, that's a big piece of the understanding that Dr. Greenblatt is trying to put out there into the world is that each child is an N of one. Each child is an individual. Each child needs to be loved enough to be looked at as that individual person. And therefore, we need to spend our time really focusing on everything we can to chip away at the stone. So what's left is this beautiful, healthy person with their natural personality. He talked a little bit about sleep, you know, and we have the brain waves that we understand, alpha, the relaxing waves, beta waves. Uh, we need to pay attention. They're lower in ADHD. Theta waves in, in, are the daydreaming waves. They're increased in ADHD. So again, these kids are more prone to daydreaming. We know this, staring out the window. I did that all the time as a child. And we know this. So they have ways of now measuring and looking at these waves and do they increase or decrease based on modality and therapy. And that's awesome. And that's how we get the studies that help us understand what's really happening. Finally, toxins. We need to really spend time avoiding toxins as much as we can. Looking at our water supply, are our pipes leading into our house copper, especially in the Northeast, which could leach into the water, giving you higher copper, dropping your zinc, and that's not good. Are you exposed to lead, as we've seen in some environments, especially in Detroit, right? Are you exposed to other chemicals from pesticides that are in a farm nearby and that's getting into your groundwater? Are you exposed to some other chemical from a plant nearby? These are all things that need to be looked at. I ask these questions all the time in clinic. Are you, do you live near a farm? Do you live near a factory? Do you know if your water's clean? Are you using a filter? Right? These are all important questions to ask, right? Because we know that let's say you get too much copper. What does it do? It causes you to be more aggressive. You'll have a poor response to stimulants and you can be very irritable. And these are all super important things to understand. I really want to spend a little bit more time talking about the evidence for the evolutionary thesis of ADHD. And again, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I am a big fan of the understanding as to the why this exists. Genetic mutations aside, we are, as a species, who we are because we've evolved this way over a long time. These are not new problems. They are heightened now because it's a mismatch of how we have been for a long time and how we're expected to be now, i.e. a child who used to run around the farm helping dad do all the work 
is now asked to be sitting in a school classroom and stay focused for a long period of time. That's not inconsistent. It's just not the way it was. So folks have been looking at this. Anthropologists like Dr. Dan Eisenberg and others have been really trying to understand, is that the truth? Is that this is a new novel problem, or is it that this actually evolutionary evolved over a long period of time? And when we go look at different groups like nomadic tribes of Africa and, and Australia, you start to see that the inattentive or impulsive behavior type is not something that is a very large problem. From an article in Sci- Psychology Today, written November 22nd of 2022. Justin Garson, PhD, is the author. There's a specific section here I found to be really interesting. The author writes, what Eisenberg found was that in the sedentary community, those who had ADHD traits tended to be less well-fed and healthy than their non-ADHD counterparts, as measured by their body mass index. Incredibly enough, however, among nomadic aerial people, those with ADHD traits tended to be better fed and healthier than non-ADHD counterparts. He speculated that their fluid attention style would make them more vigilant to potential threats to the herd, to signs of disease or malnutrition or sources of food or water. ADHD traits such as novelty-seeking, exploration, vigilance really might have been evolutionarily beneficial for these ancestors to move from place to place in search of new resources while always being highly attentive to threats of predation. This paper also goes on to look at some other research that noted that based on genetic methods and tests, they found that ADHD traits were overrepresented in migratory peoples or early migrants and people with ADHD traits likely spearheaded the move to populate the earth in different locales, i.e. leaving Africa, moving to Europe, and moving all around. There's this somewhat of a phenotype of desire to be restless and change and move, and that was advantageous when you were trying to find new resources. Dr. Chen then studied the distribution of certain gene variants that is consistently correlated with ADHD traits. He found that the gene variant that codes for a subtype of the brain's dopamine receptor tended to be more frequent in populations with a longer history of migration ancestrally. There's also some additional evidence that the gene that's involved or the genes in specific that are involved in ADHD actually had positive selection pressure for most of the last 50,000 years, i.e. it was enhanced, not reduced. And that likely means that the natural selection was because this gene variant worked to help humans survive when they needed to migrate and do many of the things we've been talking about. Whether that's still happening today at the genetic level is a question mark. Clearly, there are other things happening that are making attention deficit more common, as we talked about, toxin exposure, many other things. So it's not an evolutionary selection at this time and could be problematical when it's overdone. But historically, the ADHD phenotype was not a bad one. So coming full circle, what does this really mean? The ADHD phenotype. 
is not a bad one. That is true. Kids who have ADHD will thrive when they are put in a exposure environment that tends to work towards their best skill set, exploration, growth, getting out there in the world, seeing stuff. So these are the kids we don't want them to be sitting in a classroom for eight hours a day every day of the week and expect them to thrive. That's not in keeping with the historical precedent set by anthropology and the understanding of it. The more opportunities we give these kids to move, explore, and be, the better off they will be and the more likely we as a society will improve because of their gifts of what they see, learn, and do. And also the fact that everybody around these individuals will learn from how they do stuff and vice versa. The comparative love of working in groups helps each person learn from the other, whether one person is more attentive and exploratory, uh, non-exploratory, but the other one is inattentive and exploratory. Again, these are all good things when we put the um, round peg in the round hole. And the square peg in the square hole. At the end of the day, we need to have a, just a very different view of neurodiversity. We need to start thinking of all of these disparate ways of being neurologically in concert with what is the best outcome for each person individually and society at large. And not to look at these ADHD, ADD, uh, autism, you know, these other disorders, as we call them, as truly dysfunctional so much as we have to find what works best for each person individually in society. There are many folks with autism who are incredibly powerful at their ability to do things that are functional for them and society, running companies, you know, engineers. I mean, it, there's so many places that happens where we clearly don't want these traits to become so profound that they are non-functional, i.e. the autistic child who has complete inability to communicate, function, and be in a societal experience. That's not what we want, right? The ADHD child who is so impulsive, impetuous, that turns to, he or she turns to, you know, drugs and other things that are trying to heal the wound of not working in the system, right? That's not what we want. Everything has to be around doing the best for each child individually as well as in concert with society. So we need to start looking at these named disorders again, which don't really mean anything. Giving it a name is just something we do in medicine, but frankly, I don't think it matters. I think we should just be saying your attention is not where it needs to be. How do we help you get to where you want it to be? Right. And as Dr. Greenblatt said, there are ways to pull on those levers to look at that. And that's what we need to be doing. Okay, I think that's it for today. As always, everyone, appreciate your time, your effort, your love of learning. If you enjoyed this podcast today, please go give me a rating on Apple Podcasts. I love to see what people think. I'd really appreciate if you leave a comment in the ratings. Uh, That helps people like myself, see what I'm doing right and wrong in the in the sense of what is best for everyone's learning, their hearing, how they want to hear these podcasts, everything else. So anything you can share with me would be great. Also, you can always drop me a line at newsletter at salisburypediatrics.com. 
But in general, as always, hug those kids. I appreciate you all. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or the healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.